Hi, I'm Maeve Doyle, and you're listening to A Private View. Uh, Today, we are looking into album cover art and how it's become an important part of the culture of music, but also collectible in its own right. Album covers are one of the various ways in which first impressions affect an audience's perception about a musician or a band. Uh, Some people say that record shops used to be like art galleries. You just go by and see all these great drawings or photographs. Um, You know, the, the record album's design or the record cover's design affected the audience's opinion about the music. So when you saw something like The Rolling Stones and Sticky Fingers by Andy Warhol, you knew they were pretty transgressive, particularly at that time. To have a crotch shot with a zipper that moves up and down, amazing. Or Velvet Underground and the Banana, the original one was Peel Back. I mean, these album covers are legendary and they define culture. A couple of years ago, I think it was just over a year ago now, times sort of faded in and out of lockdown, uh, but there was an auction for a painting by Cause, the artist known as Brian Donnelly, who problematizes the art world because his popularity can't be kept down. And as a graffiti artist, he's a phenomenon because the art world would have preferred he didn't enter their ranks. He wasn't at blue chip galleries and didn't command 14 million pounds at auction. Uh, This time, the 14 million was for the Cause album. And the Cause album went for 14.8 million, which was five times higher than Cause's or Brian Donnelly's previous records. So that album, and we will continue with album cover art, but the whole parody is significant. Uh, the Yellow Album, the, the Cause album was a parody on the Yellow Album, the Simpsons take on the Beatles' famous 1967 Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, which replaces its original figures with characters from an animated series. Now, here's where we get crazy, because it's art imitating life, imitating art, imitating life. And in in taking appropriation to the next level, the Kimpsons uh, characters have causes... X's drawn across their eyes and skulls and crossbone heads. So album cover art has now become fine art, so to speak. Uh, You'll hear me go through the work of the Rolling Stones, Sgt. Peppers, uh, Robert Maplethorpe and Patti Smith, Miles Davis, uh, the Talking Heads and David Hockney, the Sex Pistols album, Shepard Ferry and Johnny Cash, the Beach Boys, uh, Lou Reed and Transformer, Mick Rock and Queen. Have a listen. I hope you enjoy the show. Someone asked me to do a story called My Life in Art this week. And there's always uh, parameters around what your life in art is and your life in art may have to be what they have in their gallery but you do it anyway and if you've been in the art world long enough you can make it work so my life in art started uh with with uh, the 1970s rolling stone sticky fingers album 
Uh, it had a real zipper. Uh, later, I discovered that the Warhol superstar Joe Delisandro, he went on to star in some of Warhol's films like Trash and Heat. And I think it was at that moment when I was in formative years that my fascination with Warhol started. Uh, they had to call back the album Sticky Fingers and change it. There was some problem with the zipper, but it's such a great album. And as they say, it was the bulge that was seen around the world, though we never saw the face of Joe D'Alessandro. The notoriety was there for him as Andy Warhol's model. And Sticky Fingers is such a great album. There's so many things that come to my mind with the Rolling Stones. It's Andy Warhol, it's Terry O'Neill. It's the kind of time when the swinging 60s were people having fun. And I remember this reading something about Terry O'Neill and Mick Jagger talking to each other and thinking when they'd have to hang up this entertainment thing and get real jobs because uh, they wouldn't be doing it 50 years later. Well, they're doing it 50 years later. And I think that was the joke and why Terry O'Neill, who is referred to as more of a journalist than a photographer because he's a storyteller. He is a photographer, but he thought of himself as a journalist and he definitely worked for newspapers and photographed Warhol and Jagger and Roger Moore and Michael Caine and all the rest of the people I've told you about before. So in my life in art, another option I had to choose from was Terry O'Neill, who of course I picked because of the great photo of David Bowie that wasn't used for Diamond Dogs, but it was taken for Diamond Dogs. And there was a massive Great Dane rearing up like a horse on a in this Terry O'Neill picture that was part of the exhibition at the VNA a few years ago. I hope you got to see it. The glam aesthetic and expressionistic dog uh, just triggered in me this lifelong fascination with London. Uh, it certainly wasn't a look that I saw much of in Ontario, Canada. piece of art that I mentioned in Art That Changed My Life was the Jeff Koons White Terrier Puppy Vase. Uh, I'd worked at the Hayward Gallery in the early 90s when Jeff Koons and La Chicolina, the former porn star and politician, uh, links to Mussolini, I believe, but extraordinary presence as a power couple walking into a room. I mean, they were uh, sharp as a tack in terms of the way they dressed and looked. And certainly there was an aspect of performance art in the way they entered the Hayward Gallery at the time. I'll never forget it. I know during the day that Ciccolini had on a pink outfit. At night, she had the identical outfit on in blue. It was, it made a big impression on me. And uh, when I look at my Jeff Koons white terrier puppy vase, I always think of that moment. And I think about his collaboration with Lady Gaga, who studied performance art, who 
collaborated with Jeff Koons on Applause the, and on the album Art Pop. Uh, one of the lines was, one second I'm Koons, then suddenly Koons is me. It's a comment on the mingling of art and pop and transcending the boundaries and genres, which is what this show and uh, the past few shows have been about, primarily going into ideas and movements and how artists go work together rather than reviewing exhibitions, which what we do pre-lockdown. Uh, I hope you're enjoying it as much as I am. It's a bit more conceptual. We're talking about album cover art today, and we know that Bebop inspired Jean-Michel Basquiat, and we know that Jean-Michel Basquiat's Bird for Charlie Parker is on the cover of the comeback album by The Strokes. Today's show is a little bit about the history of album uh, album cover art. Although we're coming out of lockdown, we're sort of mentioning the same things over and over again because we're getting back into the rhythm of of art shows. So we know there's a Terry O'Neill show coming up. We know that that Warhol exhibition is reopened. However, to go a bit deeper into things, I'm still researching phenomenons. And one of the phenomenon is music and art go together. Uh, music fans have always taken pleasure from looking again and again at album covers. Anytime you walk into a music studio, you see framed album covers, and they're so uplifting to see those kind of collaborations uh, connecting different people from different mediums. But creatives is what the show is about, really. It's the fundamental principles of why Korsh and I come here twice a week. We, we do believe that the art world inspires, uplifts, and keeps us together as a culture and society. Uh, Tony Bennett said that the marvelous album covers of the 50s, when you bought a record, said about the marvelous album covers of the 50s, is that when you bought a record, you felt like you were taking home your very own piece of art. And... Uh, the artwork is very much part of the identity of the record. We talked about Sticky Fingers and the Rolling Stones, but of course the Rolling Stones also worked with Robert Frank, the great photographer. You know, they've been around for so long, we forget just how fantastic they were when they came out and how many boundaries they pushed back and collaborations and other artists they brought into our orbit of understanding how they... You know, you, if you saw the Aretha Franklin documentary from last year, you'll see Mick Jagger slipping into the back of the church in California to listen quite invisibly to Aretha singing. Uh, uh, listen, the the right the format for what the Rolling Stones were were doing at the time was artistic experimentation with Brian Jones and the way they lived and and the involvement of Anita Pallenberg and Marianne Faithful and uh, putting out a record like Sticky Fingers was unimaginable in those conservative times. Um, they say that a landmark artwork that first attracted mass attention in America was Capitol Records designed for Nat King Cole's album. Nat King Cole and Orange Colored Sky, that was an album that apparently is documented as marking the shift in album cover art. Have a look at it. You can see that 
graffiti artists would be influenced by the graphics involved. Uh, many of the greatest covers of all times were associated with the post-war jazz and bebop era. RCA's Victor Art Department of the 50s uh, had an artist on board named Jim Flora, and his distinctive drawing style was lighthearted and a mix of caricature and surrealism, uh, references to Paul Clay and Picasso. Uh, he was a great fan of Duke Ellington. You could see that Duke would take him into the studio, not in a dissimilar way to Frank Sinatra letting... Terry O'Neill be with him without monitoring what he was doing. They just let this Flora guy, this Jim Flora artist, hang around and sketch them. Uh, and Flora said, all I wanted was to make a piece of excitement. So wonderful collaborations. We moved into the late 50s, early 60s, and groundbreaking photographers started doing album covers. You can see them on Charles Mingus's albums, Art Blakey, Miles Davis... Uh, it wasn't just jazz that was undergoing an album revolution. Album art was hitting things like jailhouse rock with pictures of Elvis in sort of stylized poses with lettering across the cover. Uh, Little Richard, Howlin' Wolf, Chess Records got into the album cover art. I read something getting ready for this show about record stores used to be like art galleries. There's an incredible Atomic Mr. Basie album that uses the mushroom cloud from Hiroshima. Uh, in the 60s, it became fashionable for bands to commission the covers for artists and art school friends. Um, the Beatles famously worked with Peter Blake and Richard Hamilton. If you're a fan of the artist Cause, you'll know he did a rendition of the album from Sgt. Pepper's, and it went for record prices at the Hong Kong Art Fair a few years ago. Auction House, pardon me. And then we have the collaboration between... Has anyone heard about Kanye this month, this week? He's been hitting the headlines with some... Uh, newsworthy stuff, but I'm going to take it right back to the first time I heard him because Cause collaborated with Kanye as well, uh, 808 and Heartbreak. But I'm happy to say my first guest since March is in the studio, and it's Devin Desjardins. Did I say your name properly? Yeah, that's, that's great. Let's hear you say it. Um, very American version is Desjardins. Desjardins, <laughs> I like that like as Desjardins well. Desjardins is a French interpretation. It's lovely to have you here. I'm sure that lockdown probably changed some things you were doing in your career. Did you have, and it's, is this your first public appearance since? This is my first time out, yeah. See, this I, uh, is good. First uh, available time I could get out of uh, Los Angeles, I came straight to London. So I've been here for about a month, had to do the 14-day quarantine, and now I'm starting to be able to kind of run around here. Did you have to do it here? Yeah, so really? they require a mandatory 14-day kind of isolation to make sure you don't get any symptoms and keep everyone safe. So I tried my best to follow the rules and stay inside, but now I'm a free bird, so and <laughs> here I am. And a you are. And, and I, I, um, I was told about your work by one mm -hmm. of the girls who works at Maddox Gallery. Oh, great. Uh, Daisy, I think you know yeah, Daisy. Yeah, wonderful and, girl. And on Sunday, which I just reached out to you on D on. Instagram, yeah. and here you are. So I think that speaks a lot to the happenstance and happy accidents and willingness of creative yeah. collaborations. So this show uh, 
aims to take a little bit of a deeper dive into what artists are doing. And I think sometimes the pictures need words and sometimes mm -hmm. they don't. But I guess what I'm doing is trying to find out what starts someone on the path to be an artist mm. and what semiotics and symbolism they're working with. Yeah. So I'm going to start with what we talked about yesterday, about your yeah. background a bit. Let's dive in. Let's dive in. Mm. Portland, Oregon? Yep, born so and raised. the West Coast <laughs> is an interesting place. I mean, I know yeah. Portland, Oregon does a lot of chainsaw it's a very sculpture, um, yeah. chains, <laughs> chainsaw totem poles. I yeah. mean, but it also has a vibrant art scene. Yeah, I think growing up in Portland was uh, a pretty incredible experience, just because it is such a unique kind of weird hippie new age society where it's kind of like a mix of these tech nerds and athletic kind of superpowers, and then you get this very vibrant kind of over-the-top, eclectic, and eccentric art scene. And I kind of having that mix of influences growing up it really kind of, I think, instilled in me at a young age this, this need to create and this need to kind of build something from the bottom, yeah. Uh, the West Coast has a great energy to yeah. it. I spend a lot of time in Vancouver. And I okay, know yeah, yeah. The West Coast, I know people roll their eyes, but until you spend time there, you don't realize how special and different yeah. it is from mm -hmm. anywhere else in the world. And you live in L.A. now. Yeah, I've been in Los Angeles for the past, like, four and a half, five years. So the one thing I'd say when I look at your work is uh, historical references, in my mind, are mm. every, everywhere. Yeah, you're, you were born quite recently. You're in your early, your mid-20s, yeah, right? Yeah, 26, yeah. And I look at your work and I see the kind of seriousness of Picasso yeah, or of Paul course. Clay mm -hmm. or Kandinsky's spirituality of yeah. color. I know you say you're self-taught, but you did train in fashion, right? Yeah, self-taught as so a painter. So I'm trying to get yeah, to it Yeah, it's all. kind of an interesting background. I feel like I've bounced around a lot in my life. I originally went to, to college or university to study like world religion. So I was studying for about three years pretty intensely um, just kind of the different worldviews and perspectives that were out there. I was very interested in kind of, you know, I come from a pretty private conservative Christian family and I was like, okay, I think I need to step out and make sure, you know, what I was raised to believe is what I identify with. So I wanted to have a good understanding of what else was out there. And during that time of just um, kind of diving into, you know, different worldviews, like I said, I found that like, I guess a profession in that was not necessarily what I wanted to do, but it was more so an interest of mine. So I still had this like innate, innate desire to create. And from there, I always found myself, you know, interested in fashion, interested in design. And so, um, you know, for the past five years leading up into kind of my art career, I was, you know, doing kind of a luxury menswear brand um, with one of my closest friends and we were diving into the LA fashion scene and cut and sew and starting up factories and hiring sewers and doing that and I just found um, such a great passion and great kind of like I said interest in just creating something from nothing and that's kind of where it all started yeah. And the rumor is you've been self-employed since you worked, that you've never really worked for anyone. That yeah, you, I 14 think, had your own business. Yeah, I started at like 14, 15, um, just like with t-shirts and built that for a while with my brother. And then once I moved to Los Angeles, so that was in Portland, did that for about four years. It was kind of just like the local company, kids company of like t-shirts and cool little 
gadgets and whatnot. And then when I transferred um, to a university in California, I, I dove more into like the higher end luxury market of creating like more exclusive and higher end products. Part of the reason I say that is uh, oftentimes people wonder about self-discipline, yeah. how artists maintain a schedule. And mm-hmm. when you... When we talked on messaging on the weekend, you said, I'll call you around five. Yeah. And what I loved and noticed right away is it was exactly five when you hmm. said, I'm going to call you. Yeah. And I thought, okay, this is someone with great self-discipline. He knows the power of his word. Yeah. He does what he says. He says what he does. <laughs> In those few sort of invisible gestures, you yeah. really get a sense of who someone is. And then when I started to prepare the interview and I knew you were available. I'm like, okay, this person's been self-disciplined from a really early age. Mm -hmm. And that must have been an advantage when you switched from fashion into art making practices. Yeah. I mean, I've just always, I think it's, it it might be a little bit of a downfall and it may sound kind of arrogant to some degree, but I've always like hated not doing anything. I've always like when I kind of sit around all day and vacation and do those kind of things, I feel like very useless. Um, And I've always wanted to just kind of get up and get after the day. And so when I switched to art, I kind of looked at it as like, yeah, I can paint whenever I have this inspiration and go in there once a week, once a month, whatever it may be. But if I put some sort of schedule of it and looked like it looked at it as a career and as a job as something that is part of me, I want to put part of me out in the world every single day. So I would be going to the studio from nine o'clock to six o'clock, Monday through Friday. And then occasionally when the weekends hit in, I felt a little extra spurt of energy I'd go in on the weekends. And that discipline, I think, helped me realize that creativity doesn't just need to be something that comes out on a whim. But if you can tap into that daily motion, that daily rhythm, you can really produce a lot of work and a lot of, um, you know, different messages. So who are your influences? Because you do produce a lot of work. And I know what I see when I look at your work. I see a color a restricted color palette. I see the sense of a sculptural form coming Mm -hmm. through in a painterly process. Yeah. Distorted sort of representation, but still clearly figurative. Yeah. It's really interesting because I get asked that question a lot. Like, you know, what are your inspirations? And it's I guess there's two sort of ways to look at it. Um, when it comes to like inspiration as artists, I look at some artists as great inspiration just based off of their personality and kind of their their background and their culture and you know the people that they were around at the time. Um, I love kind of just kind of the craziness of Tracy Emin and I love the dark and kind of twisted personality of Francis Bacon. While when it comes into techniques, I love um, obviously Picasso is a huge influence in my work with cubism and. Um, you know, I, I don't know. There, it, it changes so much for me. I love old master paintings, especially the portraits, just because I find a lot of my work, you know, parallels with that kind of portraiture that's been from the past. But yeah, it's hard to pinpoint one specific kind of. It's because you're always taking things in. Yeah. Have you seen much since you since you arrived I or ju- got out I of quarantine? I just went to. Um, it's the big the National Gallery yeah and that was cool um, yeah just obviously looking at all the old master paintings but um, I haven't I mean a lot of the galleries right now are closed around here so it's hard to get in and yeah. even if they're not closed they look closed yeah so it's it's strange in that sense too with the idea of world religion uh, mm-hmm. the philosophical study of world religion you notice 
early on that words are inflammatory and words yeah. are political and words are weapons. Yeah. So the for me, what I get stuck on is your world religion study, the yeah. five big religions, mm-hmm. what they all have in common, and the kind of switching into painting. Yeah. I'm going to go here. Yeah, if no, I'm please. wrong, tell me, yeah, did no. something shock you in those days? Because I've been shocked with words before and how yeah. people react to them that yeah. made you want to go into a visual. I know there was therapy involved yep. as well with myself when mm-hmm. I was younger. I know that there's this form of trying to work things out. Yeah. Take it away. I think the desire for wanting to bring kind of those studies and the idea of many different religions into the work um, just came from a place of seeing how much separation has come from, you know, religion when in fact, when you look at kind of the parallels through most of the major religions out there, there is a very strong connection between each one, you know, um, so let's name them. We've got yeah. Buddhism, Hinduism, Muslim, Judaism, Christianity. Yeah. And the tenets in most of those mm-hmm. are the same with the way they're articulated a little bit differently. Yeah, and this is like, you know, stuff that I'm still wrestling and struggling with, so I don't have a specific answer of where I'm trying to necessarily point this yet. And I think that's the beauty of being able to paint where it kind of allows you not have to be up there on a pedestal preaching and talking and saying this is what it is, but it's more so just representation of my mind and where I'm at with struggling with certain things. But I just wanted to create, you know, a uh, a symbol, a a, a work, a, a body of work that could create the conversation around the idea of just protection and the need for, um, you know, spiritual, mental, and physical protection. Um, without saying, you know, this is the one way to receive that; it's the other way that you have to receive it. But more so, having a piece of work to be used as that kind of totem to then speak around it and allow people to have an open conversation. Yeah. I'll let you off the hook a bit and yeah. read a quote that I read you wrote yeah. by Iris Apfel okay. about finding personal style and how it's something you yeah. have to search for because visuals are a yeah. vocabulary and mm-hmm. the way you dress, the way you present yourself, uh, it isn't all consumerism and vanity. It's yeah. the way you carry yourself. And yeah. as a species, we read each other mm-hmm. through those symbols does style still sort of resonate with you? Is the way you dress important? And- yeah, I think so. I think, um, you know, style is the first kind of way you, you know, interpret someone's whole personality. And I think style is important to have because it allows people to understand who you are on an, on an outside perspective. You know, it doesn't necessarily make you who you are, but I think it's a good way to kind of hint at, you know, something else. You have to know who you are to have style. Yeah, I mean it's so hard. I was wa- sounds horrible. But <laughs> I was you walking around in like you know the the Herods and the Selfridges yesterday, and I was with my friend, and I was like, it's so weird. Like so many people are dressed nice, but they have no style. Like they don't really know how to create their own unique look. It's just kind of a regurgitation of the name brand plastered all over them. And I think you're very right when you said you have to know yourself in order to have like a unique style. So as an artist, that takes you into another realm. Like, how does an emerging artist cultivate a collector base? How do you have shows? I know firsthand Mm -hmm. that I would want to work with you again because of you make it 
there's a certain charisma in dealing and charm in dealing with someone who is reliable yeah. and and their word is good and they show up yeah, and yeah. so you've got all of that mm-hmm. how do you make the rest of the magic happen you just had a show in los angeles yeah correct? yeah yeah i did that with uh coats and scary uh richard and chippy um british guys british guys yeah, yeah they're from out here and they've been in the art scene for god knows how long and they've been just a great um great mentors great friends you know first and foremost uh to me and they just did an incredible job of helping me get that first show up and running and i'll Um, just add this because it kind of ties into the theme they have big links with the music industry too they used to have a place in saint james and i know they were i know they had a gallery there i'm not exactly sure the music tie just i'll have collector base i think yes i'll look oh yeah they have huge collector base in the music scene that's it i think it was something like green day and yep that's crazy, you know that. That's amazing. <laughs> Green Day and yeah. Dan Baldwin, yeah. and I'm, and they were just charming yeah. to be around. So I could see why they would eat eat, <laughs> eat up the opportunity to show you yeah, work. Yeah, they they've been around before. I mean, they visited me when I think I had just painted a uh, a stand up double bass. It was like I reconstructed it with a friend of mine, Elizabeth, and the, he came and saw it in a shop, and then was like, I need to meet this kid. So it was before I had even touched the canvas. He was mentoring me and telling me about art and it was really quite an incredible experience with them but it's important because dealers have had a sort of strange reputation because of commerce infusing it but dealers used to be the people who would draw out the difficult and uh, the difficult things that artists didn't want to do. So the mm-hmm. Leo Castellis or the yep. Betty Parsons or the yes. maybe even Peggy Guggenheim would bring out the sides of artists yeah. that other people didn't want to see. Yeah. And I think your dealers have that same quality of being able to go into the, maybe a, a dark side or, yeah. or something that's more difficult to understand. Mm-hmm. So lucky you to have your first show with them. Yeah, no, it was great. And to kind of circle back to answering your question about developing a collector base, I just think it's something that has to come a little bit strategically but more so authentically of just having genuine relationships and connections with people in the in the art world and some even outside of the art world and they could be new collectors and new um you know new people entering in and wanting to become collectors and i think it's just a matter of having solid you know genuine conversations with people and allowing them to connect with the message that you're trying to trying to tell that that's leads me to this question in in a collector base do you think a lot of collectors are buying into the artist mm. as much as the artwork um you know I'd like you smiled I, yeah. before i said it <laughs> yeah, you knew, I knew where it. i was going yeah i mean is the cult of personality a big part i'm still you know fairly new as i've been painting for just about two years now so it's like i'm fairly new to like kind of figuring out that question but yeah i think a lot of times now a lot of buyers do buy into the person and i think from what i've seen it's you know if, if people there's two ways to look if people are looking at it as like a, an investment as far as like wanting to return later on to buy and then sell you're obviously going to want to invest in somebody that's motivated and working hard and, and doing the right things and being in the right places and being around the right people and then there's the other side of people that genuinely buy the work because they're like, I connect with the the art that you've created and the message that it's telling okay. it, and I don't care. Yeah, it makes me feel amazing. It makes my house or my office or whatever it may be feel, you know, special. And um, I've had both of those people come. 
I think the latter is what I really connect with as the artist, but also understand, you know, the other side of it. And I'll tell you what, no judgment, because people yeah. start where they start in the art world. And if they're going to get hooked, they get hooked. Yeah. And it can be in the most unlikely places mm -hmm. that someone suddenly can't live without art. The art kind of does the work for you. And on that note, mm -hmm. how do you feel about living with your art and being around your art once you've done it? Yeah. I watched your documentary and I could tell that you had nerves, which I liked. Yeah. Nerves when you were putting on the exhibition. Yeah, I'm... I was. It, I originally started by just painting out of out of my home, and I was like, okay, I gotta get out of here and move to a smaller studio, and then gradually have progressed to bigger and bigger studios. And it's nice to be able to step away and see the art, um, you know, in its in its place of creation. I only have one piece of my art in my actual home, and it is in my bedroom, and it looks over my bed, and it's the same. It's the the same face that I've had tattooed on me. I've had it made into a necklace. Like it's just to me, it's kind of my personal guardian, as the body of work is called. But I just felt connected to it when I made it. It's actually sold. Um, someone bought it about a year and a half ago, and they've allowed me to just keep it while they've been traveling around. It's just been in my room, and I've always said like this is my special piece that I've wanted to keep. And they're like, we'll keep it as long as you want, and we'll get it from you someday. And I thought that was really cool. That's a good collector. Yeah, yeah, really cool. That's a that's a lovely collector. Yeah. That's I'm glad. So this guardian thing, <laughs> not thing. Yeah, no, no. I can see how it's deeply rooted in your psyche with yeah. world religions and. And whatever struggles you openly talk about you had as a child yeah. that people have. Uh, and I was talking about some of the guys with some of the guys at Maddox about your work, and they were blown away by the Guardian series. Wow. This idea of talismans and a amulets and mm -hmm. uh, I don't know, whatever, whatever you call them, but special mm -hmm. things that keep you safe. Yeah. Where did that come from? Yeah, and, that, and it kind of circles back to the topic of religion and finding that like connectedness between each thing i just realized that you know regardless of your worldview or religion or whatever you want to put as your view for this world there's always a need to like want to have some sort of protection around you and especially in this political climate and you know spiritual climate coronavirus yeah, coronavirus yeah. you need protection from a mask and political you need this and that and this and that and so it's just become something as like a symbol of like whatever I see as physical, spiritual, and mental protection, here is a symbol that can represent that. So when people ask, you know, what is this guardian X face, whatever it may be, you know, in the series, they then can share, you know, for me, it represents this. And there's a specific reason why everyone's like, why don't you name each, each one of these paintings a specific name? It's because I want the the consumer i want the audience to associate their own specific meanings with it as they look at it rather than saying this is so and so and this is what this means it's, so it's creating, consciousness yeah, raising really yeah, yeah without sounding i'll sound pretentious yeah, you don't yeah, need yeah. to it's the consciousness raising that you yeah. want and the whatever alchemy happens between a person and an artwork mm -hmm can take them there yeah and that's back to the collector base it doesn't mean it doesn't matter how people start collecting or where yeah. they start or why they mm -hmm. start the second they start it's either going to happen to them or it's not yeah do you collect art i do and i only or currently not i'm not gonna say only i currently collect 
art from young emerging artists that haven't I feel like haven't fully tapped into the scene yet but people that I'm genuinely believe will be like the next biggest artists and they need a lift yeah they need someone to believe in them yeah and and a lot of these people are that I've collected from there's a guy in Indiana named Zach Love and he's great name he's been yeah right he's been an incredible mentor of mine he's 30 I want to say 33 34 he's produced so many works of art and he's just kept them private and stored and he's like when my time comes my time comes and i'm you know planning years and years ahead of time about you know what i'm gonna do with these things and it's so well thought out this kind of 20 30 year plan where i'm like you are like the most incredible artist that no one knows about and he's been such an inspiration to me and i have one piece of his work and i think i have like the only piece of work that he's allowed out of his studio and that's in my room as well so when you do come into my room, if you ever have the chance to come to Los Angeles and see my house, it, there's something powerful in that room because I feel like it really is holding the next part of history, which is really interesting. And I don't want that to sound like pretentious like you're talking about, but yeah. This is a pretentious... We're, we're okay. <laughs> you're okay. You won't yeah, be yeah, judged yeah. here. Yeah, this yeah, yeah. Is, we're talking, if you've just tuned in, to Devin Desjardins. Yep. Say it the American way. Desjardins. Yeah. Desjardins. Uh, you can look at his work yeah. on Instagram. Tell people yeah. what it is because just, I'll be dyslexic yeah, at this no, moment and get Instagram's it wrong. Instagram's Devin Desjardins, D-E-V-O-N-D-E-J-A-R-D-I-N. You've been listening to A Private View. We had a great chat with Devin Desjardins, a young up-and-coming artist who's in from L.A. He's plugged into the art and fashion scene, one to watch without question. Uh, If you like the show, please subscribe. Anything you want to chat about, feel free to get in touch. My Instagram is at mavedoyle.com art or mave at mavedoyleart.com as always thank you Korshid Homi for producing the show and we'll be back next week thank you for listening <laughs>